Good morning, everyone. Um, Our Bible reading today is from Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said to him, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. It's great to uh, be back. Uh, It's great to see all of you again. Well, as we start the new year, we're going to be starting a new series and continuing the Genesis series from last year. Uh, Chow Wee took you through Abraham and Isaac, and so we'll take um, off with um, Jacob. So six weeks on Jacob, the blessings of God and Jacob and his life, and the grace that we'll see in his life as well. Well, why don't I uh, pray for us as we come together this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our wonderful God who continues to pour out your grace upon us. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to not only see that in Jacob's life as we uh, look at his life in Genesis over the next six weeks, but also in our own lives, that our hearts may be filled with thanksgiving and that our lives will abound with the grace that you have showered us with. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would uh, nourish our souls now as we open your word, uh, that you'll help us to understand even the difficult parts of Scripture, uh, that we may see your goodness in it and the way in which you encourage us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, Sir Charles Woolley led a team of archaeologists to Iraq. Uh, They went to Tel el Marayak, which is approximately 16 kilometres 
west of the Euphrates River between Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. When they started digging, they found an old city buried under their feet. It was a very old city, about 4,000 years old. And what they found was astonishing. This ancient city had law and order. Wooly found one of the earliest major law codes ever written. The ancient city had plumbing. Uh, Wooly discovered that the city had an established irrigation system. The ancient city knew how to build. Wooly found double-story brick houses with up to 14 bedrooms, including plastered interior walls. Uh, this ancient city was cultured. Uh, Wooly found a lapis lyre, one of the first known musical instruments. This city that he found was a civilised city, a civilised community with unmatched technology of its day. But they weren't just smart and organised, they were also very, very wealthy. Wooly uncovered 1,850 burial, burials, including 16 royal tombs filled with treasures of gold and silver and bronze, comparable to Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt. These people were very civilised, very wealthy, but even more than that, they were also very religious. Uh, Wooly found several temples, including the temple of the moon god Sin. It was huge. But along with the temple, they also found very, something very disturbing. This civilised community, with the highest technology of its day, practised human sacrifice. In three of the royal tombs alone, 164 people were sacrificed as part of the burial ritual. Now, you might be wondering why I'm telling you about this obscure archaeological site of 4,000 years ago. Well, it's because Wooly had discovered the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. Do you recognize that name and that city? It's the city of Abraham, the city that Abraham was most likely born in, was raised in, was married in, and lived in. It's where Abraham was when God called him to follow God. You see, as we continue our series on Genesis, we might be tempted to think that we're reading mythical stories, but we're not. We're reading about real people who lived in real cities in history. Last year, we saw how God chose Abraham and blessed him with Isaac. And this year, we'll see how God blesses Jacob and continues to fulfill his promises to Abraham. And today's story, today's passage begins by reminding us that the passage we're about to read can't be read in isolation. Verse 19. So please have your Bibles open and follow along with me. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Now when you read uh, Genesis, you'll notice this phrase over and over again. This is the account of. Uh, this phrase breaks up the book of Genesis into smaller sections. It's like a chapter marker. And what the author wants to remind us of as we start this new chapter, as it were, in, in the book of Genesis, uh, is that as we look at Jacob's life, Jacob's life can only be understood in the context of Abraham and the promises God made to Abraham, which we see in Genesis chapter 12. So let me do a little bit of a recap. Genesis 12 verse 1, the Lord has said to Abram, so Abram was his name before he was called Abraham, go from your country, that is the, Ur of the, at the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I'll show you. Pack up your bag and leave. Leave behind your pagan worship, 
Leave behind the irrigation system that you much, um, most enjoy. Leave all of that and come to a land I'll show you. Now, I think we often assume that God chose Abraham because he was righteous. But he wasn't, was he? You see, Abraham didn't come from a God-fearing family, but a pagan family that worshipped idols. Now, have a look at what Joshua said when he renewed the covenant with Israel when they occupied the promised land. Joshua 24.2. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. And if, if Abraham was a pagan worshipper from the city of Ur, the Chaldeans, he might not have just been a worshipper of the moon god Sin, but he might have even practised in child sacrifices. That is the patriarch that we're talking about. And out of all the peoples of the earth, out of all the countries, God could have chosen to bless anyone. Even in the city of Ur, the Chaldeans, God could have chosen Terah and blessed him, the father of Abraham, instead of Abraham. Or, or Lot, his nephew, or Mr. Jones, who lived next door. Or, or God could have gone to China and chosen Mr. Wong. Or, or gone to Australia to choose Mr. Aboriginal to bless instead of Abram. But out of all the peoples of the world, 4,000 years ago, God chose Abram and called him. Not because Abram was more righteous than Mr. Wong or more deserving of God's affections than Mr. Aboriginal. But because God has the sovereign right to choose. And he chose Abram and called him and made promises to him that would rewrite history. So Genesis 12, 2 and 3 I will make you into a great nation, God promises Abram. And I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God promises Abram a great name, and he, and he had a great name. He became extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, extremely well-known. And, and God promises him land and offspring and, and blessings, and that through him... All the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. And that's exactly what we see as the story unfolds in Scripture. That the promises of God are worked out and ultimately finding their fulfillment in Jesus. But the promises God makes to Abraham weren't just going to happen by chance or by human merit. But every step of the way, just as God intervened to choose Abram to bless the world, so every step of the way, God will intervene. God will have to see it through. God will keep his promises, and he'll do that by grace. He will shower people with grace so that his promises will be fulfilled. In fact, Isaac is living proof of God's grace. Remember, Sarah was barren her entire life. So unless God intervened and graciously opened her womb, she couldn't have given birth to Isaac at the ripe old age of 90 years old. It was only through God's intervention and grace that Abraham would have a son according to the promise. And as we come to today's passage, where it traces the family line of Isaac, we find out that Isaac's wife Rebecca is barren. And so unless, once again, God intervenes and graciously opens Rebecca's womb, there's no way Abraham's descendants will become a great nation. So verse 19 again, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. 
Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Badan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. And so Isaac prays to God to intervene. Isaac prays for grace to open his wife's womb, something that only God can do. So verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Once again, God intervenes and once again, his grace is shown. He graciously causes Rebekah to conceive. And Rebekah became pregnant. She probably didn't realize she had twins. As her belly got bigger and the two babies in her jostled and elbowed each other and kicked each other in her womb in verse 22, she, she's wondering what's going on here. And so she asked God about it, verse 23, two nations are in your womb, God tells her. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now the custom of the day and even in some cultures today is that the firstborn son has all the privileges. The privilege of the, being the firstborn, the birthright. He's the one who gets to inherit most, if not all, of his parents' possessions and land and blessings. But notice what God does here. God flips the expectations and the customs of the day on its head. And he makes the decision between the twin boys before they were even born, before they did anything good or bad, God tells Rebecca that it's the younger who'll be stronger. It's the younger who'll be served by the older. You see, the promises of God will be fulfilled, not by coincidence, not by human merit, not by cultural norms, but by God's gracious and sovereign choice. This challenges the common notion that good people... Uh, 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 good people go to heaven and, and bad people go to hell, doesn't it? Because society expects good people to be rewarded and bad people to be punished. But what we see from the first book of the Bible is that those who belong to the promise are not those who think they deserve it, but are those who don't deserve it and have been chosen by God's grace. We even see this in the birth of the twin boys, verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Now, I don't know how hairy you were when you were born, but I'm sure you weren't as hairy as Esau. His body's covered in hair like a rug is sewn onto his skin. That's why he's called Esau, because Esau can mean hairy. Imagine going, going to school and saying, oh, well, what's your name? Oh, how are you going? Yeah, I'm, I'm hairy. What's your name? I mean, it's not a very nice name, is it? But it's not as bad as Jacob. Verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hands grasping Esau's heels. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. They waited 20 years before she would conceive. Jacob's name means he grasped his heel, the heel. That, that's literally what Jacob was doing when he was born, wasn't it? But he is also a Hebrew idiom for being a deceiver. And, and as we'll see in this series, that's exactly what Jacob grows up to be. A heel grabber, a deceiver, a schemer, a cheater. Imagine going to school with that name. Oh, what's your name? Oh, I'm a cheater. I'm a deceiver. 
And so you might be wondering, why would God choose Jacob, a heel grabber, a deceiver, a cheater, to, to be on the receiving end of the blessings of God, of the promises that he made to Abraham? Well, Romans 9 tells us why. Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. All things being equal, right? Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now we can spend all day going through that passage. It's jammed packed with a lot of stuff. And I'm sure you have lots of questions. And I'm happy to chat about it after the service. But the point is clear, isn't it? God will keep his promises. Not by human effort or merit, but by his mercy and grace. And that's the same with us too. God, God doesn't have to save us because we're good. He saves us because he chose to save us. So Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 7 tells us, For he, God, chose us in him, that is Jesus. God chose us in Jesus. When? Before the creation of the world. So God had you and me in mind before even Adam and Eve were made. Before there was the sun and the moon and the stars. God already had you in mind he already had chosen you before the creation of the world to be what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. And why did he do it? Why did he choose you even before he created everything? Even before sin entered the world? He chose you, we're told, in love. He loved you so much already, even before he created anything, that he predestined us for adoption to be brought into his family, to sonship through Jesus Christ. Now, sonship here doesn't refer to gender. It refers to the right of inheritance in accordance with his pleasure and will. Not in accordance with our goodness or our righteousness or, or the rights of claim that we might have, but it is in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Do you notice that? It is all God's grace. Now, I grew up in the church, but I never learned about the doctrine of election or the teaching of predestination. So when I began to learn of it at Christian Union at Melbourne University, I really struggled with it. Because it, it seemed completely unfair. How can God choose to save some and not others? But, but as I read the Bible more, I realized that the doctrine of election is both necessary and a great comfort. It's necessary because the Bible teaches us that we would never choose God. In our spiritual death in sin, we would never naturally choose God to repent of sin, to follow Christ. We wouldn't do that. So unless God makes the first move, we'd be dead in sin. 
will remain dead in sin. Abram would remain as a pagan worshipper in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. But, it, but it's also a comfort because we don't have to wonder whether we're good enough to be saved. We don't need to be perfect to be chosen because God chose us before the creation of the world, before we did anything good or bad. And he called us when we were living in sin. You see, God's election gives us assurance of our salvation because it doesn't depend on us, but it depends on the mercy and grace of God. And so unless God intervenes by his grace, no one will be saved. Only he can raise the dead so that we might have life in him. And so this should fill our hearts with relief and humble thanks and gratitude because God doesn't choose us because we're good. He chose us even when we're bad. But even though the doctrine of election is both necessary and comforting, it can still leave us feeling uncomfortable, can't it? Especially when we turn our attention to Esau. I mean, he wasn't chosen, so how's it fair? Well, let's turn to the last section of today's passage to answer that question. From verse 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Well, Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Now, Esau and Jacob didn't just look different. They had completely different personalities. Esau was like Bear Grylls, who loved the great outdoors. And Jacob was like Jamie Oliver, who was more of a homeboy. And their differences were made worse by their parents. Have a look at verse 28. Isaac, who had a tasteful wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac and Jacob, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, sorry, were, were wrong to have favorites. And, and what he tells us is that this family was far from perfect, which now only accentuates how gracious God is but how necessary grace is. Not only to choose to save some, but to keep those he saves. But Isaac and Rebekah aren't the only ones who causes problems in the family. It's made worse by Jacob's deception and Esau's disregard for his birthright. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Jacob really lives up to his name, doesn't he? Instead of giving his brother stew, he grabs his brother's heel. Jacob's not the kind of person you want as a friend because you'll never know when he'll deceive you, when he'll take advantage of you. Well, what this shows us so clearly and starkly is that Jacob's elected not because he was good. Jacob was elected because of God's grace. And that's the encouragement of the gospel, isn't it? If God would choose to save and bless someone like Abraham, who was a pagan worshipper, who may have participated in child sacrifices, if God would choose someone like Jacob, a deceiver, a heel grabber, then God could save anyone. There's no one off limit. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can turn from their worship of idols and human sacrifices to find forgiveness and love and mercy in the God of all creation. And that includes Esau. But instead of treasuring his God-given gift, his birthright, Esau despised it and sold it to his brother for a bowl stew. Verse 32. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? 
But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. God may not have chosen Esau, but Esau also didn't choose to keep his birthright. In fact, we're told that he despised it. He valued it even less than a bowl of lentil stew. You see, Esau did have a choice, and he chose to give it away for nothing. You see, the doctrine of election teaches us that God chooses and Esau chooses. It's 100% God and 100% Esau. Both are equally true. I know 100% plus 100% doesn't work. It's not good maths. But so it is with the Trinity, isn't it? How can there be one God and three persons? One plus one plus one does not equal one. But bad maths makes good theology. That's what we keep seeing. You see, the Bible teaches us lots of things, and we might not understand it all, and that's okay, isn't it? Because we're not God, but we understand enough to trust in God. So even before I grasped the doctrine of election when I was growing up, I still lived like I believed it. Because I would pray to God for my friends, because God chooses who he saves. Yet I would also work very hard in evangelism because my friends had to choose to believe in God. Both are true. And so as we wrap up today, you might be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm elected? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the author of Hebrews addresses this question. The letter was written to the persecuted church, and and you can just imagine how tempted they were to flee from persecution to flee from their faith and to give it up so that they wouldn't have to be persecuted anymore. So that as the letter draws to an end, the author of Hebrews encourages them, don't give up your faith, persevere. So Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 14, we're told, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, if we want to know if, if, you, if we want to know if we're elected by God for salvation, then we're someone who not only has turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we're someone who'll keep making every effort, will make every effort to be holy. And when we stuff up, we repent. That's part of the journey of holiness. Because God will always forgive us. God will always save those he elects. But if we keep living in sin and stop making every effort to be holy, and that means we stop repenting, then we might end up like Esau. Verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the older son. Arthur Wood, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he saw the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You see, Esau was living for the here and now. And what he wanted more than anything else was to satisfy his appetite, even if it meant giving up his future inheritance. And what's more valuable, your future inheritance or a bowl of lentil stew? It's obvious what's more valuable, but he yet he was willing to give it all up. 
So don't be like godless Esau. Don't throw away your future inheritance in Jesus, which is far better and far more glorious than the inheritance that Esau was to receive. Don't give up your inheritance of your immortal body that is unperishable, one like Jesus's. Don't give up the riches of heaven that's to come. Don't give up the, <laughs> the great banquet that you get to enjoy. Don't give up all of that to satisfy your earthly appetite now. It will be like trading all the glories of heaven for a bowl of lentil stew. If the Hebrew Christians could give up the gospel to spare their lives and be free from the torture of their persecutors, yet they're told it's not worth it, it's worth death, as long as you get the inheritance later. Then how much more foolish is it for us if we trade our future inheritance for some earthly pleasures now? Your future inheritance in Jesus is too precious to trade, so don't lose sight of it. Don't give it away. Don't trade it away. It's never worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you chose sinners like us to save us from sin and death. And give us the hope of not just a resurrection, but life eternal with Christ. And we pray, Father, that as we long to be with you, that you help us not to be like Esau and trade our future inheritance to satisfy any earthly appetite now. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.